All right, everybody, welcome back to GovCon Different. Everybody's talking about how do we modernize? How do we transform government? It's a tough problem. It's so tough, frankly, that as of 2019, according to GAO, only 11% of federal agencies are running on the cloud. We've got a guest that's pulled it off. His name's David Bray. He has a track record as a CIO of actually taking the FCC and moving them from 207 legacy systems and transitioning them to one award-winning modern system on the cloud. David currently is the Geotech Center Director at the Atlantic Council. Does a lot of work on AI, on policy, technology, the future of work. So it's great to have David on the show because not only, as you see, he's going to be very insightful, but he's got hard, concrete experience that talks about how you do these things, how you bust through the bureaucratic barriers. I think the most important thing any leader can do, and this is very true, particularly in public service, is to make visible the invisible. When you make visible the invisible, you're probably not going to get rewarded. You have to have a strategy for when you sort of almost peel back that Band-Aid on the ugly scar that needs to be addressed, be ready for the backlash, be ready for people to blame you or be be anxious about this because they've been they've been making it invisible for a reason. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in public service that are doing the absolute right thing, but sometimes doing the absolute right thing and then larger politics or everything else steps in and they get beaten down saying, okay, I'm just going to stick to my lane and I'm not going to stick my neck out. When in fact, what we really need are those people that are willing to be brave on behalf of the public. GovCon different. Ideas from the outside apply to GovCon to drive change. It's like TED Talks meets the federal space. Different ideas from different industries, uncovered, unvarnished, and smashed together to produce change in the government space. Join us as we explore a world of GovCon possibilities. First of all, David, great to have you on today and looking forward to a fun conversation and some fresh perspective. Excellent. Well, really glad to be joining you. When I look at modernization of federal IT, and I was just reading recently a report from GAO that talked about 11% of federal agencies are running on the cloud. And so much of this show, our sole focus is how can we get better, right? And I don't want to demean, there are great people. You and I know them. We work with them. Project Maven, Kessel Run variety of people innovating, but across the enterprise, across at scale, the federal government, it's really tough. However, in getting ready for this show and looking at your bio, there were a lot of things that I noticed. And one of them is that you led a team at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to take 207 legacy systems and modernize and translate that into one modern award-winning system. So our question is, David, how the heck did you manage to pull that off? Well, yes. And and I I have to say all credit really goes to the entire team. And I think that's the first secret to success is recognize it, it, it cannot be done by one person. It really does take a team. And, and I arrived at the Federal Communications Commission in late 2013. Uh, between various acting and permanent uh, individuals, there had been, uh, apparently, I was told, nine CEOs in eight years, which is, I say, is always a great sign for CIO number 10 that things are going just great. 
Um, and and uh, as you said, uh, they had more than 207 different systems, um, all on-premise, um, and that were essentially uh, consuming more than 85% of their budget to maintain. And this was 2013. You could just extrapolate the average age of those systems for more than 10 years old. So it was only going to get harder and harder and harder to maintain them, more and more expensive. And we would not have the ability to shift from going to spending our money to maintaining those systems to actually doing new development. So uh, the first thing, I think, is really recognizing that uh, any good leader has to take the time to, to listen before they ask to be listened to. And I think that's often the case. And, and I know right now, like you said, I mean, it's 2020. So, you know, here we are now seven years later. I would have expected, you know, I would have expected at least 25% of the U.S. government. I would have been probably more optimistic and hoped even more to find that we're still at 11% is distressing. And I think it's a question of how we get out there. But, but one of the things I did was I took the time to understand where we were at. I think the, the, the big challenge, I think, is they were always fighting fires. Uh, this, the sense was there was always the tyranny of the now. Here's this thing that's rushing. And so taking the time to have, have the long view was something they didn't have the luxury to do. So, and so I think, yeah, go ahead. When, when you arrive on that scene, though, one, it strikes me that you're talking about a discovery process, some, talking to mm -hmm. a variety of the stakeholders and so forth. It's got to be intimidating seeing and finding out all that you're finding out. Their mission requirements, the old systems, the amount of budget. How do you even, I mean, that level of complexity, how do you manage that piece as you're doing that discovery in the beginning? You just have to let it wash over you. And it is very daunting. Um, there were probably some times when I took the last Metro home. Um, so, you know, for a while there, and, and fortunately I had a wife that was understanding, it was some very long days of you just have to absorb. And yes, you're like, this seems like a very deep hole. How am I going to get out of this? This this does seem to be challenging. And I think that's where anyone going that role needs to recognize that at least for the first year, year and a half, it is not a nine to five job. And I don't know if it ever was a nine to five job, to be honest, but you're, you're going to probably be putting more in then and again we, we aren't allowed you know to uh, senior executives do not get overtime so it's just basically this is just you doing it for the good of the nation you have to have that but 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 as you do that try to take the time so it's not just you try to find who else is 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 concerned about this who maybe and actually there was one case where there was one individual i found that unfortunately, I guess they had they had raised issues in the past, they had spoken up in the past, and, and the people didn't want to hear that. They had actually literally been sent to the basement. Uh, and so I, I got to know the person, I brought them back up. I was like, no, no, I actually want to hear these things. Even if they're challenging, even if they're distressing, I'd rather hear them than not hear them. Yeah, you know, there's a movie Office Space where they send the guy into the basement. It sounds like that. Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but I think this is, this is recognizing that we humans... <laughs> We human, I think the most important thing any leader can do, and, and this is very true, particularly in public service, is to make visible the invisible. Uh, and, and I think there, there are times when agencies are saying, you know, either they'll say, we tried that before, it didn't work. Well, yeah, you tried that 15 years ago and the world has changed. Or, you know, it'll never happen here. Or, you know, we aren't rewarded for taking risk or things like that. And, and the, these myths become sort of shared misperceptions or things that hold people back. And so the art of a good leader is helping him see, 
I mean, for me, the biggest thing was just producing charts for, um, at the time it was um, Chairman Wheeler, but I mean, produ producing it for the commissioners and saying, look, here's where we're at. We're already spending 85% just to maintain systems that are 10 years old. It's only going to get worse unless we get out of this. And fortunately, he was able to see it and actually we could build a coalition to make it happen. Um, but that took about, that took time of listening, that took time to motivating it. The other thing you need to recognize though is when you make visible the invisible, you're probably not gonna get rewarded. I mean, we have a phrase, shoot the messenger. Uh, it happens and unfortunately, um, you have to have a strategy for when you sort of almost peel back that band-aid on the ugly scar that needs to be addressed be ready for the backlash, be ready for people to blame you or be be anxious about this because they've been they've been making it invisible for a reason. You have to have a strategy for how you're going to survive that. Was there a lot of backlash as you made the invisible visible? Yes, I think a lot of people are asking why are you doing this versus just fixing my here and now? You know, why are we, why are we, you know, if we go to the cloud, that's going to take time and everything like that. Why can't we just keep on doing what we're doing? Can we just add on this? You know, you're going too slow. And then the other thing we did fairly quickly is they actually had had a plan to go to virtual desktop. We updated it some and we did. Now this was virtual desktop in 2014, early 2014. Uh, and, and what we discovered is, of course, is you need additional GPU acceleration. But there was some complaints about like, I just want to go back to my PC on my desk. Why do I have to have something provided by IT? And I was like, well, this is part of the strategy of going to the cloud is you don't need to be running everything locally. If you're running everything locally, then we have to update, update it, maintain it. The patches are always out of date. It's a security risk as well. And, and But you had to help the programs that just wanted to deal with the here and now, and that were essentially treating IT as, as if they were a support function subordinate to them. What I have been trying to say, and I think we're hopefully getting there better, is it's not like IT is subordinate to the mission. It really is you do your mission with IT together. And that's sort of reshaping that 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 partnership. But that's part of the history of IT is, I mean, we, we did evolve from being basically an accounting function that reported to maybe the CFO and then maybe the COO. And now you're finally getting to see in the private sector, and I hope in government as well, if a CEO is not savvy to all things digital, that's usually a death for a company. I mean, you look at COVID-19, if you're not going to digital, you're probably going bankrupt uh, nowadays. Right. So you had a chairman that was backing you. That was a key aspect of the success from what I'm hearing. Yes. Also sounds like in making the invisible visible, you were also trying to change mindsets and the role of IT. Tell me more of how you did that, because I'm hearing your relationship building and and being able to provide benefit to folks with virtual desktop. But how do you change that mindset in an organization that's done things for decades in a certain way? Right. Uh, so it's twofold. So you, you build a coalition to back you by planning to do singles and doubles before you try for the home run. Um, and, and so there was one time when we were actually visiting one of FCC's facilities in, in, the north, in, in, in the Northeast. It was in one of the states and we were visiting and they were talking about how they handled uh, complaints and they were literally handing them manually through the mail. And he's like, there must be some way, you know, if someone has a complaint against, you know, a provider or something like that, where we can have a much more easy, easy to do automated system. And so that, that seemed to me something that was doable, manageable, that was not the sheer scale of let's move everything to public services and, and private cloud, but let's try and figure out something else. And so uh, we, we, we did pull in uh, an effort to try and solve the, the moving to a better consumer complaint system. Uh, 
Now, uh, it turned out we had someone that had been on the West Coast and, and sort of been doing sort of a startup mode and Silicon Valley startup mentality who was willing to work for the government. Uh, but I had to be his flak jacket because he came in with his ideas and, and, and it was immediately like, well, where's your enterprise architecture? You know, where's your three-year budget plan and everything like that? I'm like, no, no, this is a system that's probably going to cost no more than $125,000 to do. Uh, come on now, we do not need to have that labor. And that was me taking some flack for him. Uh, and he, you know, there was actually, I think there was at least one time when he actually thought about just getting on a plane and just flying back to the West Coast. He was so frustrated. Yeah. But I raise that because it's not that you can just simply bring in folks from outside of the typical culture and then just place them in and expect goodness. It really was. And I think what made this particular change agent succeed is he was willing to actually understand where people were coming from, even if he had his own way of doing things. And so it, it I mean, because I think what had happened before at the FCC is actually was change fatigue in some cases. Mm -hmm. I think there had historically been an attempt to bring in people from outside thinking, but what they did was they created them as a completely separate team, completely separate from the existing IT team. And that was just a recipe for peer rivalries. And, you know, it, 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 they, they were not one team. And so one thing I always stressed throughout everything I did was one team, one mission, different skill sets. There's a lot of history that we need to learn from, but there's also new approaches we do together. And, 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 it, and, it, and actually, the biggest thing I was doing was actually not just flak jacket from him changing how we did things IT-wise, but from the programs that said, wait, we've always had this process. What's going to happen you know, when we move to this new process? They were actually very worried as well because the new process, instead of requiring 10 people to handle a complaint, would require a percentage of a person. You know? And so they were worried that they're going to lose their jobs. And what we had to help convince them, and I actually had to get the chairman to buy in and say is, no, 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 there'll be other work for you to do. It just won't be doing the same thing over and over again. There'll be something new. And so it really, up until the point where we're going live, I think we had a lot of resistance. People thought we were crazy. And it wasn't until about two to three months after we went live that they came back and said this was one of the best things that ever happened to them. But it was that proof point of if you follow us on the journey, even if you think that this might be the end of the world or something like that, if you follow us on the journey in three to four months after we finally get this out there and we'll continuously update it, you'll actually be very happy and actually be free to do better work than the rote repetitive work that you were doing. Right. Now, in my own career, I've had moments, and I started off years ago in CIA and then worked for defense contractors. Now I run my own shop. I have had some spectacular failures in innovation, things that we thought were exciting, great technology in the field, but we couldn't get it across the line. So two-part question. One is, David, did you have some failures along the way that were, frankly, crushing? Then the second part is, is it important to fail fast, learn from it, and recover? Yes. So I uh, agree 100%. And the first thing I would say is I try to remind people that FAIL is actually an acronym for first attempt at iterative learning. So really all you're trying to do is make sure you're just learning fast. And, and it's really only a failure if you do the same exact thing over and over again, expecting different results. But if you try something yeah. and you learn from it, pivot, pivot, pivot. Uh, and I think that's something that is particularly hard in government. Uh, especially now that, you know, the good news is we're 24-7 news, we're social media now more than ever. That's great. So, you know, maybe there's some more transparency that comes with it. But it also, unfortunately, makes any attempt at learning uh, become almost like, you know, how, how could you have possibly have done that? And as opposed to saying, look, you were operating underneath uncertainty, you were willing to experiment, you were willing to learn. I think for me, as we had the strategy to go to cloud, I think the challenge was we did not think about how we were going to bring along legacy IT security approaches that, quite frankly, were built for an era 
I think they were still catching up with client server. Um, but I think thinking through IT security, I think that was a challenge because everything could work and everything could be secured in terms of the hardware and the software, but but it was it was being ready for trying to make sense of an environment that was not directly under your control. And this was again, 2014, 2015, I mean, things have, have gotten better, um, but it was thinking about how you can make sure that, that, that practices, and, and as you know, government has a lot of oversight functions. And I think, you know, in some respects, that's good. We should be definitely accountable to the taxpayer. Um, but sometimes oversight can also become a political tool um, to try and say, you know, I don't want you to do this, but I'm not saying I don't want you to do this. In fact, I'm just going to stick a lot of oversight on you and things like that. And so having a strategy for that, I think if I could go back, that would be one thing I would actually try to do a lot more of, uh, particularly because, again, 2015, 2016, we still had some things that scratched your head when you're like, okay, wait. Even though we move to the cloud, you're requiring us to physically identify where those servers actually are. Oh, okay, that's kind of hard. And so we we would get dinged for things that didn't make sense. And so, but it was just it was partly it was a it was a it was a limit of bandwidth. Now strategies to overcome that, strategies to be more successful in an environment in which you are trying to do first attempts, second attempts, third attempts at learning. Um, here's what I would say. Um, so one of the things I did very early on, again, recognizing there had been a lot of history and baggage and, and change fatigue even before I arrived, is I did start doing all hands meeting. And some of them were to talk about things we did. But I also tried to make at least once, once every three months or so a conversation where I said, I can only ask questions during this hour. So it's not me. you know. Again, it's me trying to listen. And so the first one I did with them, I got everyone together and I said, so, so how are we doing? You know, how do people feel? You know, where do we want to go? And, and initially, I think people were a little bit, you know, it was like, odd. why is the CEO asking me questions? And, and I knew there were some extroverts. So I called on one of the extroverts. I think I said, Bill, you know, what do you think? And, and Bill sort of gave his thoughts. And people started chiming in. And we talked for about a little bit about, you know, you know, I, I was me listening to them about the journey they'd been on before I arrived. Mm -hmm. And then I said, so, so how many of you are excited about the future? And, and, and I asked people to, you know, be honest. I said, you know, this is, this is, again, this is a safe space, not attribution space. Less than 15% were excited. Uh, I said, so how many of you, and I, and I said this half jokingly, but also seriously, how many of you are just waiting to see if I'm still here six months from now? And, and actually, that was about half the audience that said that. And then I finally said, okay, and how many of you wish things could go back to the way they were in the 1990s when IT seemed easier? And that was the remainder. It was, it was about you know, 35 40%. Uh, and then somebody actually raised their hand, and, and I actually give a lot of kudos to this person. They said, I have a beef. And I said, okay, could you please tell me more? They said, it happened 17 years ago. I was like, could you tell me more? And, and they, they proceeded to tell me what it was, and I listened. And, and afterwards, I said, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, could you possibly share thoughts on how you think we could take that experience from 17 years ago and then incorporate it to how we go forward as a group together going forward to make things better? And I think that, that, that sort of trying to help people get over the hump of there was a problem that happened in the past. It may have either beaten me down or scarred me yeah. to becoming solvers instead. Because we know, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in public service that are doing the absolute right thing, but sometimes doing the absolute right thing and then larger politics or everything else steps in and they get beaten down saying, okay, I'm just going to stick to my lane and I'm not going to stick my neck out. When in fact, what we really need are those people that are willing to be brave on behalf of the public. It's interesting to me, something that sounds so little like saying, I'm going to hold a meeting and just listen, how powerful that is. And to me, that, that strikes me as a, as a great example. I've listened to you talk about empathy and a people-centered approach. That strikes me as a great example of that. Now, as I think about this, 
you had to build a team and you mentioned at the beginning that you had a great team. How do you design a team? Because this is almost operating in a battle space. It's a work battle space, but how do you design a team? What do those skill sets look like? How do you pull that together while you're doing all kinds of other concurrent activities? <laughs> yes. Again, that's why there's a lot of long days. Because uh, usually <laughs> during the day you are putting out everyone else's fires and then you finally get a chance to think when everyone else goes home. Uh, and one of the things that I did, I do recommend is find whatever your music or soundtrack is for that time when you're actually trying to do the thinking later. Uh, for me, it was Progressive House. So I was actually playing Progressive House after everyone went home. So, um, but, you know, find, find what gets you motivated and gets you going. So building a team, a couple things to observe. Um, anytime you go into a new organization, be, be, again, be in observant mode for as long as possible. Have empathy, have, 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 have listening. Um, I, this has just been my own experience. Usually the people who run to you first might actually be more with a problem, might be more the problem causers than the problem solvers because uh, they have the bandwidth to run to you and they want to get to you first to give you their versions of events so that you go in with their perspective. And it's not saying they're wrong. It's just that usually the people who are busy solving problems don't have time to meet with you right away. And so you actually have to go and find them. Like I said, there was that one person in the basement that wasn't alone. And so, so, so don't, don't just rush to a very quick belief that you now understand because you've now spent the last two weeks, you've listened to people say, who is not at this table that needs to be here? Who should I be listening to that isn't here? Uh, and I was very intentional about trying to do lunch and learns and try to actually seek people out. And I would go to them. Um, and, and then as you begin to do that, see if you can find some people you can trust who can actually then also sort of tell you, you know, you really need to talk to this person or they're not speaking up in meetings, but they're really thinking this or things like that. Begin to, because you've got to dig deeper. I often feel like any time like this, you're playing Sherlock Holmes and you're trying to figure out, you know, who did it in, in what room of the house with what weapon and, and then how do you solve it? And it's not to blame anybody. It's just trying to figure out every system is perfectly designed to see the results you're getting. If you're not happy with the results, why is that the case and what can you change? Uh, and there was one case where, again, this was, <laughs> I think this was day two. Uh, and, and I don't want to name any names, but I literally had two GS-15s come running into my office saying, you know, we have a beef with this other GS-15 about some effort that they're doing. And I'm on like day two. And they're like, we want you to step in and here's why. And I'm like, it's like, have you talked to the person about that? They're like, no, no, that's your job. And I was like, uh, okay, I just got here. You're GS-15. I'm pretty sure that's equivalent to a colonel in military ranks. I don't know of any colonel that would run to a general and say, I need you to talk to this other colonel. I was like, if, if you try talking to this person and you don't get results, then yes. Okay, then I'll assemble and we'll figure this out. But if you haven't talked to that person yet, um, you need to do it and then I'll circle back. And I think don't be, don't be shy in the first three to six months to take the time to tell people, you, you all keep on trying to solve this. If you can't reach it, then come to me after you've tried to solve it. But you know, it, th this idea that I need to get involved with fixing everything will pull me down and will not allow me to be strategic. And then that will over time, I, I say you really start to build your team about six to nine months in because you've now begun to observe the patterns of behavior, the patterns of life. You've been able to figure out, you know, again, where people come from and what their strengths are. And I would say the number one job, whether you're a CIO, CEO, whatever it is, Build a team in which you, you, you design the team and the environment in which they operate to amplify people's strengths. You know, we all have weaknesses. I know I, you know, do not put me on an assignment that requires lots of detail. That is not my strength. That's somebody else. But 
I can build a team that has people that have detail strengths. I can build a team that has people that are really good at X, Y, and Z. And I can position both how they operate in the team and the environment they're operating in to, to, to amplify the likelihood that the team will be successful and it will amplify their strengths versus their weaknesses. It makes a lot of sense. I watch a lot of programs. I read a lot in this space. And I see executives on the industry side and the government side talking about things like we're moving out on artificial intelligence and this is going to be great. And wow, you know, we've, we've got acquisition models and so forth. And I got to admit, David, I get kind of frustrated with it because in my thinking, until we are on the cloud and until we can access the data and train the data, some of that is almost, I don't want to be too demeaning, but it's kind of happy talk. We're pumping mm -hmm. ourselves up when we're not candidly in an unvarnished way really looking at these problems and saying, wait a second, we've got to define them. So from your point of view, as much as you're building the team, is that candor, is that really a big factor? And if so, how do you practice that? Yes, so uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, sometimes I feel like there's a lot of hype train out there uh, is what I call it. And, and uh, you know, it's not unique to public service. I think private sector has lots of hype train. Uh, I mean, so I mean, in fact, quite frankly, they have dedicated PR departments, whereas at least government doesn't. Have that, so. <laughs> maybe so. that could be a new podcast, the hype train. I don't know. That maybe uh, could be. Well, I, and I think it's actually it part of the trouble is we don't have, we don't have, no one does PR for dedicated public servants. They do PR for maybe political parties, but no one does PR for dedicated public servants. But, but regardless, um, so, so yes, that's where I think, again, going back to the Sherlock Holmes metaphor, you're trying to really define what is the problem we're trying to solve here. And then I almost, I mean, I, I came from a background that included DARPA and there's the Haumara questions, which say, mm -hmm. without any jargon, what are you trying to do and why? What's different about your approach? Why do you think it will succeed? And then who cares? You know, who cares if you actually solve this? And I feel like oftentimes we're not doing any of that work and, and, and we're just going straight to the buzzword du jour. I mean, remember blockchain, anybody? And now it's AI. And I'm pretty sure, let's see if quantum shows up a year from now, who knows? You know, it's, it's, we're jumping from buzzword to buzzword to buzzword. And you have to ask like, why, what is this? And I think at the end of the day, any technology is really just a, a, a means towards an end. What is the end you're trying to achieve? That's why what I was trying to lead to is we have to get off legacy Publicly, I was saying we have to get off legacy because it's just too expensive, that this is getting more and more harder to maintain, 85%. Behind the scenes, coming again from the background I had with Department of Defense and Intel, I just knew it's hard to secure legacy. Uh, I mean, these were systems that just weren't built for an era in which they thought they would be completely connected to the internet and people could do interesting and odd things with it. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, that, that terrified me. As I, I, I told my wife, even before I started, I said, you know, we could get hacked in the first week and I get blamed for it um, just because, these systems are really not built to be defendable. Yes, we're going to do the best we can, um, but and that was the other thing. Is, is as we as we tease things out over the years, over the months and years, there was just so many legacy, even security itself. I mean, people talk about legacy IT, but it was like, wow, this is so complicated. People had bought things that were not compatible with other things, or people had bought security products that by themselves were good, but they never actually put them fully online. And I'm like, yes. okay, so we have the illusion of defense. It was like. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so that's an area that, that I definitely want to bring up with you, the buying side of it. Yeah. A lot of the work that Cliff and I do, we're in boardrooms and we're with companies and you get this RFP, this request for proposal. Right. I have seen situations of where people are shouting at each other 
trying to figure out what the statement of work is actually asking for, what the requirements are. And it's one of the inspirations behind this podcast that I've sat through it for so many years. And the requirements-based side of this, at least from my point of view, it crushes creativity. Mm -hmm. It crushes enthusiasm, real solutions. So my question back to you is, is the requirements aspect of it, is that really hindering us? And if so, what do we do about it? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Is all I can say. So, so, so again, I think it's worth like all things. So, so let's actually apply exactly what we're talking about here. Let's try to figure out what's the problem we're trying to solve here. And I think the problem we're solving here is we're seeing suboptimal partnerships between the public and the private sector to produce results for the taxpayers. And I think our hypothesis is that the very requirements process strains that successful partnership between the private sector and the public sector. And I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, part of our success was over time, we got a very good relationship with acquisition. If you don't have a good relationship with acquisition, then, then that can be death that a lot of CIOs aren't tracking. But the challenge even then was it was it was strained because sometimes they'd be like, oh, well, you're doing too much, of, of, you know, you seem to be doing much with this vendor or everything like that. And I understand that, you know, their job is to make sure I'm not doing anything overt or problematic in terms of, I mean, not that I would ever do anything like that, but, you know, they're there as a protective function. And I think what, again, this is, so, so, so again, going up to the balcony view, the reason why acquisition has become so straightjacketed is they don't get any reward. They, ha they have no connection to a reward for producing something that's more creative, something that's more fruitful. And they have all downside if anything, you know, even smells of possibly being awarded inappropriately, that we've become so litigious, but it's also policy. I mean, I hate to say it, you know, private sector, you would not have 535 people making decisions for the company. You know, you would have a board and then you have a CEO, but ultimately the CEO is responsible. But what's happening here is there are equities that need to be represented by those who are elected, uh, those that serve in Congress. And I understand that to a degree, but let's go back to Federalist Papers number 51 that said they wanted ambition to counter ambition. These are ambitious people, and they're not always agreeing on, on politics, let alone uh, how to actually get things done with equity. And I think the biggest challenge is, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to another past life even before FCC. I was with the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program was involved in a response to 9-11 and the anthrax events. Afterwards in 2002, 2003, we had, you know, we had lots of money to give to the states to make the states more prepared for a future bioterrorism event. And we looked at the science and we said, you know, one of the things we're going to recommend is do not spend your money on mobile labs because mobile labs, the moment you hit a pothole or you go across a speed bump, everything's going to get uncalibrated and it's going to be worthless. And that was all well and good until a certain state, I won't name which one, said they wanted a mobile lab. And we said, no. So they escalated up to the CDC director. CDC director said, no, the guidance says you can't do this. They escalated up to their congressperson. Guess who got a mobile lab? Yeah. You know, and so it, it's, it's, we've got to figure out how can you give those at the agency and department level, yes, they need to be accountable to Congress. I mean, we do serve those who are elected and those who are ultimately representing the public, but give them the top cover to say, you need to be able to have autonomy in your domain to work with the private sector without being straitjacketed by by acquisitions because acquisition right now is so fearful of either being called for oversight or getting a geo or an ig report they're so fearful of that that it's holding back the nation and then you can look at other countries around the world that are racing ahead on other things like that that this is now actually i believe becoming an existential national security issue for the united states just because we are aging in place and we cannot move forward 
totally agree. When do we hit a point of no return? And I hate to sound that way, but that tipping point of where, yeah, we're, we've done a lot of great things, but I think of 5G, I think of AI, I think of a lot of things that China and other countries are really moving out on. How much time do we have, David, until we say it, we won't get there? Right. Well, so that's partly why I am where I am right now uh, and trying to do is to try and make the case that this has now truly become a global issue that we've got to figure out tied to our, uh, to our existence. The good news is, if anything, sometimes organizations don't change until they're almost about to hit the ground. Uh, so it's, it's, it's enough for people to say it's good enough, it's good enough, it's good enough. And then, oh, wait, we're about to hit the mountain. So in some respects, maybe we need the fire, but we need people to see the fire to be able to then say, we've got to change this because then that'll actually motivate it. And so that's why I really appreciate what you're doing with the Squadcast is if we can point out and, and say this rationally and say so in a nonpartisan way and say, look, this is really fundamental to just how the society that we have operates, to remaining open, that if we don't figure out a better way to do this, and, and we can, I mean, we have in the past, I mean, you know, again, coming from DOD and IC, we had this thing called Skunk Works. I mean, that was, that was born out of a time of crisis to move things ahead. We can figure out better ways. And I feel like right now we, we've, we've gotten more people on the, on the peripheries aware that this is an existential issue. But the solution right now has been the thousand flowers blooming. And there's lots of them. I won't name them because I, I don't want to call out anyone that are well-meaning different innovation groups. Uh, and this is, not to, this is not to call them out in terms of doing anything bad. I know they mean well, but I even know like even when I was around, it was great that we had USDS. It was great that we had 18F, but it was doing the same thing I'd seen before I arrived at the FCC, which was these were the cool kids that were separate from everybody else. And I'm like, ah, no, no, no. It's one team, one mission. So first solve that. And then two, it was in some cases what I would call, I, I was jokingly saying it was inoflation, which is we've used the word innovation so much that it's become inflated in its meaning and lost all meaning altogether. <laughs> so uh, we, we were suffering from inoflation. It really is, again, getting back to, can we find ways to take these different groups and bring them together to do better problem definition together, recognizing they may serve, you know, one may serve the Air Force, one may serve the Navy, one may serve a different civilian agency, whatever it is, but this is all of us together versus a competition. And, and, and at least trying to say, here's the issues we have to solve. And then also be aware that they're not gonna do it by themselves. There are, there are good contractors out there, there are some that are resting on their laurels, and yes, we need to light a flame underneath them, but there are also good contractors on there. And I feel like right now, and this was the case in 2015, 2016, and I think it's still the case, we are a house divided and we're surprised when, when we're not getting the momentum we want. And so what I would love, and this is, I think is how I would begin to solve it. Assume you have three buckets. You have the civilian world, you have the DOD IC world, and then you have the law enforcement world uh, that, that's in law enforcement and other, you know, public safety world and things like that. Can we identify two to three grand challenges that need to be solved in each of the buckets? And then almost both in-source and outsource with points given for solutions that are actually both private and public to solve this. And just say, you know, MGM works, uh, AFWorks, uh, DIU, 18F, USDS, even people inside agencies that have been there for 18 years. If you come up with interesting solutions and you can demonstrate they're actually a partnership with this other group, with this other group, with this other group, including private sector contractors, then we're going to be more likely to award it. And it's going to be a gated approach, which is we're not going to give you a contract for five years. That would be death. We're going to give you enough to show what you can do in six months. If you can do that, something that's great, then we'll give you more for another six months, another six months. And if you can't, it's not that the contract is over. It's just going to say, what did you learn and what would be the pivot you would recommend? 
but we're going to run it almost like a VC would investing in internal startups in government as opposed to right now, which is the where's your plan and everything like that. Very interesting. The few days ago, we had an author on and his book was Space is Open for Business, Robert Jacobson. Mm -hmm. And he wrote quite ably about NASA, but then the new space and the beginning of the new space and XPRIZE and of course, Elon Musk and SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, Branson, et cetera. And it strikes me that what you're talking about is similar to that. Awards, challenges, prize base. How do we build more support for that? Because it just as I think about this, it feels like if we back to the Einstein, if we keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, definition of insanity, mm -hmm. how do we build support and kind of maybe mirror the new space a little bit? Right. So, so yes, definitely advocating awards and challenges, awards and challenges that involve insourcing as well. Because I feel like, you know, we launched challenge.gov, which was great, but it was so outward focused and it was a very small amount of money, to be honest. I mean, it, it was, maybe it was good for the PR factor for private companies that pursued it, but it was not enough to really attract them. And it was not enough to also, I mean, we didn't turn inside. So I think we have to be mindful of that. It needs to be very intentional efforts. I think we also need, again, the reason why I had these three buckets, is ultimately we're gonna to have to go back to Congress and we're gonna to have to say, look, Congress, you are part of the solution here, but you could also be part of the problem, which is, you know, no one in DOD ever got rewarded for not spending all their money at the end of the year. In fact, they got punished if they didn't spend all their money at the end of the year. And so don't be surprised that you're seeing, you know, optimization, some optimization for something you really don't wanna have happening. You really want them to be focused on the solution versus getting all the money out the door. And so, if we have these three buckets, I think that's enough of a united front to go to Congress versus individual agencies trying to do it to say, you know, we'll be accountable and plan for 90% of our budgets, but give us 10% flexibility to be able to pivot and shift almost like a VC would because we need that in this space to operate and allow that 10% to be pooled because there's this thing called the Economy Act, which right now says it's a felony if I use my money to help another agency out. So don't be surprised that no one's helping each other out. Uh, and that's a, I mean, that's a law. And so don't be surprised if it's a felony and you're not seeing that behavior. But I think it, it would require the, an administration and a concerted approach across different efforts to say, for the purposes of civilian, for the purposes of DOD and IC, and the purposes of law enforcement and public safety, allow some greater budgetary flexibility because that is, that is holding us back. Um, but yet we'll still do, you know, 90% of what we do. Yeah, okay, we'll give you the dots. We'll give you the, we'll cross the T's and everything will be okay. Uh, I think that would be the first step. And you're absolutely right about space. I think what we also need to do is begin to have cross-pollination between public sector and the private sector on these things. Because what's happening in space right now, I mean, I'm seeing, I'm seeing commercial capabilities where you're going to have near real-time imagery of anywhere on the planet in the next few years. And, and this is just mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing to me commercially available 25 centimeter resolution anywhere in the planet. I mean, that changes how we do public service. And I think that's, you know, we started this talking about IT. What's really getting disrupted is how you do the businesses of agencies. And, and you and I know if you take a legacy process and even if you move it to the cloud, it's still, in fact, yes. I, I think that's when you were talking about things I failed in the past. There were times where I pushed hard, but I didn't push hard enough. And they did take legacy processes and they put them in the cloud. And they were surprised that it didn't scale when instead of it being a thousand people, now it's a million people. And I'm like, yep, but that's the process the lawyers required me to do. And I, 
I see it every I see it every day. Pilot projects that are great, and then we try to scale them with thirty year old processes, yeah. and it's this rampant issue. I love the idea of making the invisible visible, and that communication strategy, even with what we were just talking about, of getting Congress and getting others aware of some of these possible ideas, some of these challenge-based ideas, new ways to budget and so forth. And this podcast, of course, is set up to do this, but I think there's other creative ideas even that, frankly, we'll have to talk about offline, of videos, documentaries, a variety of things that could make it easily understandable for people so that they go, ah, I get it. I thought I really mm -hmm. knew what the problem is, but now I understand it more deeply. I run an idea by you, and I'll welcome your response on it. We talked to Cliff and I the other day in the show. We had a company on from Silicon Valley called Moonshot Junior. Hmm. Their whole premise, they're running a school for 7 to 17-year-olds. And they believe that the education system, the college system, is not preparing students for work and for future work. If you look out 10 years from now, 15 years from now, so much of the classroom-based education and so forth, they say, ah, not going to work. So they've come up with this idea of changing mindsets through what they refer to as the democratization of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. a platform where young people and old could start to better learn how to be entrepreneurs. And they have four phases to it. Mm -hmm. One is, first off, finding what your, your misery, what you hate. <laughs> then exploration, learning more deeply, then innovation. And they had five steps, which you've seen similar five steps. There would be an empathy. There would be a prototyping, all of that type of stuff, ideation, design, mm -hmm. and then bringing it to market. But from the point of view that if you try to teach an eight-year-old a theorem or an algorithm, they'll just resist. Right. But they had children eight years old selling their products on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And their point was, and some of them were to help people with autism, some of them were new algorithms for the blind, all just different things to aid understanding. Try to stop that kid from learning then. Right. So my long discussion there is, do we need something like that in the federal space that in essence is a moonshot junior, which says we're going to teach entrepreneurship, we're going to train it, we're going to work through risk aversion, build cultures. Long, long way of getting there, but do we need that in your view? Short answer is yes, and let me dive deeper. What I love about that is it's about a learning culture. And I think you look at those organizations, either in the private sector or in the public sector that are successful, it's when, and again, I think this is a role of a good leader, create an environment in which people are open to always be learning. Uh, I think that's, you know, always be learning environment able. Uh, and that's something that I also believe that, that that's that that's something that's missing in public service. And I do think it's something that, again, when I talked about how there had been almost nine CEOs in eight years, there was no learning going on because there's always a new person and they were each trying to do their own new thing. And I think this part of my secret of my success was I was saying this is a team and I've got to recognize they've been on the journey even before I arrived. And that, that part of that is the nature of when you have political appointees come and go. I was not political, but there were people that came and went you know, you're going to lose some some institutional knowledge. And so having empathy for that. I think the other thing is also that that if we look at the art of this challenge, it may very well be that we, the public ourselves, are part of this problem because we don't, you know, everybody wants government to be creative as long as it does exactly what we want them to do. The last thing we want is government to be creative if they're doing something different to us. And so we're going to have to figure out how do you allow government to be creative, even if the path it's going on may not be what you want it, 
but it is what the plurality of the nation either voted for the election or everything like that did. And I think that's hard because, uh, you know, the whole phrase, everyone wants to rule, everyone wants to rule the world. It is true. And, and we need to recognize that we, the public may not be rewarding creativity and we may be scorning it because if it's not what we wanted, then we're not allowing it. But at the same time, we may be losing the very thing that makes us an open society versus a more dictatorship that's out there. So I think if we could teach entrepreneurship, not just the government, but also, I mean, there are parts of the heartland, there, there, there are parts of inner cities that right now are feeling disenfranchised as well. And so make it so it's not just a government focus, but saying this is actually entrepreneurship that needs to be taught to the entire nation, because that's what makes us the United States. And it needs to permeate every aspect of our lives, heartland, inner city, government. That would be incredibly transformative. And then it would be the art of, because the other thing, you know, we were talking about how we don't want to get on the hype train, but I think any good leader is a good storyteller because you have to be able to not just share the story of what your team is doing, you do have to share it, at least in government, you have to share it to your political leadership. You have to be able to share it to Congress. You have to be able to share it to OMB. And, and it's the art of, you don't wanna do shiny for shiny's sake, but you have to be able to tell them a convincing enough story that they wanna be a part of that story too. And so what I could actually see that would be fascinating about this and sort of merging your idea together into a real sense, what if we had this taught to both entrepreneurs in government for people that had been there for 10 to 15 years, but also taught to middle schoolers and high schoolers. And then we got them together and say, how would you reimagine how we do public service? And the nice thing is, if you have the middle schooler and high schoolers proposing it and taking it to Congress, they're probably gonna listen. I hate to say it, if you have government employees coming and taking it to Congress, they're gonna think you're self-interested, who's this bureaucrat, everything like that. You know, They won't listen to us, even if maybe we know what's going on, but they will listen to middle schoolers and high schoolers. And so it's an interesting strategy uh, that could actually make it acceptable. That question, how would you reimagine public service, blows me away. We can talk all day acting like we have the answers. It's the questions like that. And the same thing with the Moonshot folks. When they talked about this democratization of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. blew me away. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so powerful to do that. Now, we could talk all day on just this subject of where we're at and how we change, but you write a lot about the future of work as well. And you also speak often about we're in an era of exponential change. Yes. So if you would tell us a bit about that, David, how you see that this exponential change. Right. So just to make it real for folks, um, you know, we've already we've already had history happen. Probably most of us didn't notice it. Um, there were more network devices on the face of the planet than there were humans starting in 2013. About 7.1 billion human beings, more than 7.1 billion network devices. And two years later in 2015, we were now 7.3 billion human beings. Fortunately, we're not growing exponentially, but 14 billion network devices. So we had doubled in two years. Now, uh, as we look towards 2022, by 2022, they're estimating anywhere between 80 billion on up network devices on the face of the planet relative to only about 7.8, 7.9 billion human beings. So we're looking at about 10 network devices for every human on the planet. The amount of data, some say it's 120 zettabytes, it's 120 billion terabytes of data on the planet, which some say is twice all the conversations we've ever had as a species. So we are drowning in data, we're gonna even get even worse in terms of drowning in data as well. Then I talked about what's happening in space, that in 2022, 2023, you will have near real time persistent satellite imagery of anywhere in the planet at 25 centimeter resolution. Uh, and that's also coming along with eventually there may also be enhanced GPS that might even be able to get you down to like a centimeter in terms of where you are on the planet. You'll need that for, for, for precision autonomous vehicles and things like that. Mm -hmm. 
We will instrument the planet in ways that are unprecedented for the species and know more about the planet and ourselves than ever before. But that change is changing how we operate, how we work, how we govern. I mean, that's why I do the public service side, because I feel like if we don't figure out how to do this public service right, uh, it could very well become surveillance state or worse or, or, or feudalism or something like that. Tied to that is the future of work, which is the changing nature of the future of work, which clearly COVID-19 has accelerated. Things that would have taken 10 to 15 years. I mean, now, you know, people that were on the sidelines of is telework a good idea or not, they're kind of like, yeah, telework is now a survival. You know, if you don't do it, you will, you will not survive. And, but that said, we know, unfortunately, there are industries where people still don't have the luxury of being able to telework. And the question is then, what's our social responsibility to help them out? Uh, how do we bring them along? How do we help them, like you say, become more entrepreneurial? How do we actually recognize that probably anything that's rote and repetitive in the next five to 10 years will be done by a autonomous device, whether it's a robot drone or whatever. Um, but that's the challenge is, is a lot of cases you're talking about educational a bit earlier, we've taught people to do rote repetitive jobs and some people find joy in that. The challenge is, is that's gonna be automated, uh, partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because it will just be better to operate with scale. The anxiety I think people feel about, am I going to lose my job, is very familiar in terms of like, I, that's just that small example of where we were improving the consumer complaints process in 2014. Uh, and people were worried that instead of it taking nine or 10 people to handle a complaint, now it was like a percentage of a person. And they were actually holding us back because they were worried that this was gonna get them out of a job. I think we have a lot of anxiety present in societies, including some that it's fear of the other, fear, fear of the unknown, because they're worried they're not gonna have jobs. And, and we've got, unfortunately, some showmen that are out there like, AI is coming, autonomous vehicles are coming, and, and, and that's just scaring them even more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, since we are an open society, a deliberative society, we're not like Singapore, which actually every 10 years creates a 50-year plan and commits billions of dollars to do that. I mean, trying to create a 10-year plan for the United States, I would love to do it, but I imagine you'd have a lot of scars at the end of the day trying to do it. Um, so how do we take the joy and the brilliance that makes us an open, deliberative, pluralistic society and come up with strategies to embrace the future of work that include public service helping those that are making the transition from the jobs they had to the jobs they want to have. And what, I, what I'm beginning to see, and I'd like to see more of, are solutions that are trying to say, if you're currently trained as X and you wanna be Y, or, or even just here are jobs that are available in your area and you wanna actually pursue this career. Can I help you not just find that job, but find online training options, course offerings to actually help you get there. Uh, and then once you do get there, make it not just that now you get the job, great, walk away. It's this idea that again, we need to always be learning. And I think that's a new mind shift and it's actually gonna challenge higher education too. I mean, the idea that you go to college for four years and that's it, it's like, no, maybe actually what you wanna do is work a little, train a little, work a little, train a little, or always be training while you're also working too. I think that's, these are new models that I think society still ought to come up with. And the, the notion of reimagining public service, the more the change happens, the more it will be inescapable that we'll have to do that now, will some of these changes in automation, AI, how could they be able to help us out of some of our problems, process, for example, in a government agency? Can we digitize that process? You know, some of these things that are so intractable right now, how could some of these future technologies help us out of that mess? 
So the good news is yes, uh, but we need to first step back and say exactly that, which is, and I think we've been talking about it. You have to first say, well, what do we want to do in terms of the future of public service? And so assuming we figure out new ways of operating that it doesn't have to be done by say, a specific government agency, it could be more of a co-op cooperative model or uh, even something that's done by the private sector. Because I do think what we're going into, the good news is democracy, technology is getting democratized. The challenging news is technology is getting democratized uh, and things that were only available to a nation state 40 years ago are now increasingly available to the private sector and the public. And so things that used to be done solely by government no longer can be or should be. Things, they now need to be done in part with the private sector, but the private sector has a hard time explaining anything other than ROI or shareholder value uh, in terms of justifying its operations. And then you've got on top of it, you now have a public that is distrustful of either the government or the private sector to get these things done. So that's the conundrum we face. What I, again, when I talked a little bit earlier about having those challenges, those challenges in the bucket of civilian space, DOD and IC, uh, public uh, law enforcement and public safety, I think those challenges should not be solely inward facing in terms of public service. They should involve the public directly. And, and again, while we've had challenge.gov, which did an outreach to some members of the public or things like that, even if the rewards themselves were not that great, I think what we need to do is find ways to reach to everybody saying, what are the challenges that we want to solve together and what are your solutions? Because then it makes it not a DC centric solution to using AI to do something different or things like that. Um, the good news is yes, what technology taketh away, it also giveth um, in the sense that we can begin to augment the capabilities of our workforce. Um, but that's gonna require a process change. Instead of say, I mean, let's just pick an example, the IRS, instead of having someone who is manually reviewing your file or things like that, you could actually have things proactively say, here's what we think you're going to owe at the end of the year. You know, if you think differently, then that's fine, you can file it. But instead of you having to file these real complicated taxes, you either have the choice of check this box or you adjust it as opposed to you having to file it and then we're auditing you. That would be a fascinating change that I think would actually engender a lot of trust. The last thing I'll say real quick on this though, um, there, was once a, there was once a fun panel I had and I was actually, it was, a, it was at Boxworks where we actually had uh, Ash Carter before he became Secretary of Defense. We had Anish Chopra and myself and, and Anish Chopra was talking about challenges and, and he was very gung-ho about challenges and I agreed with him. However, it's worth noting, he was talking about like the Federal Registry when they had a challenge to make it a, a better UI for the website. And they succeeded and that was great. The point that I wanted to raise though with him was I said, at the same time, even though they got a better UI, they were still manually on a daily basis updating the Federal Registry using floppy disk. And so we may discover that challenges may work well for things that are readily explainable and available to the public, but we may still need deep expertise, both in the private sector and in the public sector for those behind the scenes operations. Uh, or we may need to just to change those operations again. I mean, why were we using floppy disk in 2013 when we could have gone to the cloud to update the federal registry? Right. And so I think it's this disbalance of make sure, make sure we just don't do the icing on the cake, but we actually bake a new cake is so important. A few more questions. What should we have asked you? You have uh, amazing perception insight into a variety of topics. What do we miss that we should have asked you? Yes. Okay. So I think one question that I would welcome being asked, which is, are we, are we discovering that in addition to making sure hardware and software operate, are we in an era in which you also now need to address the challenges of misinformation, disinformation, and whose responsibility is that? So 
How do we do that? Whose responsibility? <laughs> so, so the error that we're facing is is one in which, um, again, I, I would say if there's any core theme to the error we're facing with this decade ahead, it's it's network effects. Uh, that that the good news is we're connecting the planet like no longer, you know, that never before more than fifty percent of the planet has internet access. Of course, we still have responsibility to make sure the other fifty percent has the option of having the internet if they want it. Um, but that's massive. And the fact that you know projections are in the next five years will go from having 50% of the planet having internet to 85% or more is transformative. Uh, at the same time, these network effects are presenting interesting surprises. And one of them is, again, this, this idea as you take things that used to be operating internal to organizations or behind firewalls and you increasingly bring them to cloud and increasingly make them publicly available, we may be discovering that it's not just enough to make sure the hardware works and the software works. But now you have to address these challenges of misinformation, and disinformation. I think people are, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's, it's interesting how we've gone from social media is going to make the world more transparent and we'll have greater understanding to now is this something that's pulling us all apart. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. But I would say is misinformation, disinformation is nothing new. Um, back in the 1800s, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson ran for president and vice president. Uh, what you don't know is, aside from being the best of, best of friends when it came to signing the Constitution, when it came time for a second term, um, Thomas Jefferson hired a political hitman to actually spread misinformation that John Adams wanted to go to war with France. It was not true. John Adams at the same time and his wife, Abigail Adams, actually started calling Thomas Jefferson a devil and, and all those things that in the 1800s was a pretty, pretty slanderous things to say. Um, and then fast forward to 1890s. Um, it's worth noting that Pulitzer actually made their money initially before the Pulitzer Prize came along with, with fairly fact-free, fact-less headlines that were very sensationalistic. Uh, Hearst did the same thing. I mean, remember the Maine and things like that. I mean, these were things that might actually have caused us to go to war. Uh, what's happening now, though, is the network effects of you know, how many people now have a phone uh, or a smartphone, if they want to go even more precise, um, that has an app that, you know, that you read something that gets your blood pressure up and you immediately want to share it. Or you get something that's like, how could they possibly have done that? Or what's going on here? I'm shocked. And on top of it, we now know, of course, you know, nobody wants to read news that challenges your beliefs on a daily basis. And so we're getting news that's delivered to us that reinforces our, our existing confirmation biases. And we're surprised when we now have developed echo chambers. And mm -hmm. so I think this is now a big issue. I mean, we already had the challenges of 24-7 news. Now we've got social media. If we operate in a public space where we want to have accountability, and I think that's that's definitely needed, how do we also address the challenges that, you know, it, it, this is long, I think it was it was Jonathan Swift that said, you know, that, that a lie can go halfway around the world before the truth gets on its britches. Uh, and now, you know, we, there's, other, there's other versions of that. How do we actually create a world, not just in the public sector, but the private sector, in which the public is willing enough to allow deeper thought and always be learning approaches? Or is it a case where we don't allow any of that to happen and it's we're never allowed to learn? And what we're really seeing is, quite frankly, uh, whatever gets out there first is what everyone else believes. And as we know, perceptions can, be, can become perceived reality and that can impact politics. It can impact how we operate as a society. And we're surprised when we, we aren't allowing anyone to have long-term strategies. And we so- We were, just before yeah. the show started, we were talking about that and how the lowest common denominator, folks that maybe aren't an expert, strutting around saying, I know. Well, what's, well I, I saw two tweets and a post and right. I know. And- we could probably talk for weeks, not just on a podcast about how dangerous that is, right? For a uh, society and rule of law, civics, all of that. From an AI perspective, if we're going to 
ferret out what is fake or misinformation? Can AI and data sets, can you train the data in essence to solve that problem? So here's the, I wish it, we could, but I'm not exactly, I'm not, I'm never going to say never because that they definitely could do it. But here's the challenges is what's your training set? Uh, that any good machine learning approach would have to have training data and would have to be millions of training data to teach the machine. Here's what I think would actually be a, a slightly better approach that could involve technology. Uh, I do know there was, there was a presidential candidate, unfortunately no longer in the running, but uh, that actually had decided to always wear a body camera from the moment they woke up to the moment they went to sleep while they were being considered for presidential candidate. And that was precisely because if there was a misinformation attack on them, they could say, let's go back to the video. Uh, and this is actually not a new idea in the sense that um, I believe it was with the Republic that 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 Plato argues that uh, Plato and Socrates argue that what if you have guardians, those who are responsible for the uh, the functions of society, they should always be willing to be always watched by somebody else following them. And so the question is, you know, how do we do that? What what is that? And how do we make sure, and who watches the watchers? Because unfortunately we've seen examples in the last few years where even the watchers seem to have either been maybe leaned on when it came to political influences or things. And so it becomes a recursive challenge of sorts, except that technology, as far as I know, is less susceptible to political leanings. Now, technology narratives or how the technology is employed definitely clearly can be made political. But could we actually have something where the algorithm is following you, not to make a decision of whether or not this is real or not or anything like that. It's just that at this date, here are the actions the person did. Because there have been times when I've actually experienced, and, and, and again, I, I celebrate being accountable. We are here to be accountable to the taxpayer. I've been, I, I have not been asked questions that I wish I had been asked because I guess people didn't want to really understand everything that was involved. And so if you had the algorithm, you could just make it so that this is now available to everybody. You can actually replay either what occurred or what happened or what really was said. Here's the full context. Because we know a lot of misinformation is 95% truth. It's 5% out of context. I mean, we've seen videos where, yes, that person actually said it, but they also said this too. And you just cropped just this little part to make it out of context. Or yes, that person said it, but they said it at, 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 at a much faster speed. You slowed it down to make them look drunk. And yep. so this is where I think at least, you know, and again, not wanting to become surveillance state, but that if you accept the mantle of taking on a public service role, it might be that while you have that role, you have a higher responsibility to the public, which is to have digital traceability of your actions as a way to, to provide that necessary um, ahead of the curve, you know, again, we hope everyone always does well. In fact, probably most people always do well. And I would actually say probably most misinformation is not quote unquote fake news. It's just misunderstanding. Um, the other thing I would also say real quick on this topic is I'm a post-positivist, which simply means we can always approximate truth, but we'll never get to complete truth. I think what we need to recognize as a society is at the end of the day, everyone has beliefs. Some beliefs are more closely correlated with what the actual reality is than others. But really what this is, 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 is embodying what, uh, what uh, President Lincoln said, which is, I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. If we encounter something that gets our blood pressure up, don't make it a war of here's my facts and your facts, or here's my facts and your facts. It's more, why do you believe that? And let me share my belief. And can we find some way to under understand each other better? There's almost not been a person ever that if I took the time to get to know them, right. said, huh. There's many things that we can connect on. A few things that strike me as you're talking about that, we have major challenges going forward, and it will require 
a level of seriousness, a level of civility. We can't solve them if we're going to be constantly pitting ourselves against each other and all of the reasons that that happens. My final question would be, uh, David, and this has been a fascinating conversation. You talk a lot about being bold. You talk a lot about being hopeful and not just becoming discouraged with problems. What are the things that you're seeing out there today that make you hopeful in the federal space? Yes. So what makes me hopeful? Uh, in some respects, actually, it, it's those individuals who are quietly behind the scenes modernizing our legacy systems. I, I actually, uh, I, I don't want to call them out, but there was, some, there was a conversation I was literally just having an hour before we actually started this conversation with someone that, 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 that was wondering if they made the right move to take a quiet role that, that they're bringing along an agency that is, you know, they, they're similar. They had 18-year-old systems and it's going to be a whole lot of work. It's, it's sort, of, sort of like catching up. And I said, you did the absolute right thing because that's what's needed, you know, to begin to get ready for the main course. You know, the appetizer is get off legacy, get to cloud. The main course is then when we can begin to do interesting things with data, with AI and everything like that, but we've got to do it. That gives me hope because I feel like there's a lot of people that, and maybe unfortunately it's the, 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 all, the all the challenges we just talked about with misinformation, disinformation that people have found that just you know keep your head down and just modernize, that will get us ready for where we need to go. So that gives me hope because I know there are people out there doing it. They're doing the right thing. They may not be getting the spotlight, but they're willing to do it because that's the right thing to do. What also gives me hope is we are beginning to have narratives about how do we how do we do data with people as opposed to two people? And what do I mean by that? I mean, in, in 2010, even in 2015, I mean, maybe 2015 was beginning to change, but 2010, 2013, 2014, it was the idea that, you know, tech could do no wrong and government is clearly out to lunch when it came to it. And they're like, well, you know, tech, if, if, if government, if done right, is standing for the equities of everybody. And what tech can do is it can amplify everybody. And I feel like everything we were just talking about here is that, We've got to get to get off legacy, get to the cloud, so we can find ways that involve the public in decisions about data and how we use that data to govern better. Uh, for example, you look at what happened with COVID-19. You know, it would have been great. You know, Google and, and Apple when they tried to lo load their COVID-19 tracking app, even though they had the best of intents with the privacy protections, it turned out, according to Pew, three out of five Americans weren't going to trust it in April. But what if instead they had said, we're going to partner with the public sector, we're going to partner with either the government or nonprofits to have in each of the 50 different states, citizen juries of 10 to 12 people who are there for the year. They're not paid by us, but they're really there to serve as oversight for what's being done with the data involving this app, how it's being done, making sure it's deleted every 20, 21 days or whatever it is. And we also have audit functions where we have either you know KPMG, ENY, Deloitte, whatever it was, come in and actually validate that we're actually doing it too. So we're using the different sectors of the public, the private sector, and government to do data with people in which it's participatory if you want to be, um, but it's also making sure that we're not doing data just to people. And I feel like the last decade, it was either governments supposedly doing this with data and they're not getting your permission, or the private sector is doing this and you, know, you had a 40-page terms and conditions sheet, but you didn't read it. What I think that gives me hope is if we can get off legacy, move to the cloud, the next five years, let's do some experiments with how we do data with people because the future is going to require us to be very data intensive. And if we can find a way to make that democratized and participatory, I think we will outshine those societies that don't. A very new data model with a lot of light shining in and social and cultural aspects included 
instead of just technical, basically, a new data model to accomplish the objectives to solve the big problems we need to solve. 100%. People-centered approaches to data together as society. Awesome. David, Dr. Bray, awesome to talk with you today. Really appreciate the time and just so many thoughtful comments and insight on, on a variety of modernization of future topics. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything that, that you're doing with GovCon and the Squadcast. And if there's anything else I can help out with, uh, thank you again for being bold, benevolent, and brave. So there you have it, David Bray. Guy has a lot of big thoughts in his head, doesn't he? A couple key takeaways that I really got out of that. One is this notion of being bold. Hey, how do you make the invisible visible? And he gave us examples of that, how he would ferret out problems within the organization so that they could work with it, so that they could improve. He also gave us insight into a lot of the problems aren't technical. They're human. It's so easy for us to forget that. But there is an emotional intelligence aspect of this. If we're going to break through the cultural barriers, we've got to have that boldness and clarity that David was talking about. And then lastly, some of the questions of what should we be doing? What should we be like? I just think what a great thing for our audience to hear. So thrilled that all of you could join us again. And remember, social media, hit us up. Give us a like, give us a dislike, even the hate mail. I got to tell you, we love that too. Tell us what's on your mind. What problems are you seeing out there? We'd love to hear from you. You hear me say all the time, this show can't get better. We can't do the mission of driving change unless we're connected with you. And we're really hearing what's on your mind, what resonates, what doesn't, what you think is crazy, as you've heard us talk about. Great to talk with y'all. We'll see you again soon. GovCon Different. Ideas from the outside applied to GovCon to drive change. It's like TED Talks meets the federal space. Different ideas from different industries uncovered, unvarnished, and smashed together to produce change in the government space. Join us as we explore a world of GovCon possibilities. GovCon Different is produced by Market Advocates, LLC, and Nexus ATX, LLC. On behalf of Cliff Sundstrom, our executive producer, and myself, Eric Prostiovsky, your host and executive producer, thank you for listening.